Hello and welcome to Switzerland Investing. I'm Peter Switzer and yes, I'm still in the south of France in Antibes, uh, but I will be on my way home for next week. Uh, it's been quite a tumultuous week on the stock market and I will talk about that in a moment. On tonight's show, we have Mike Gable from Fairmont Equities and Mike's charts will be very interesting to have a look at to see if there's anything positive emerging I kind of doubt it, but still, we like to see what Mike's seeing in the chart. So we'll see that coming up in the show, kicking off. Then Angus Moore from PropTrack is an economist there. He actually says that the listings for the property market has kind of rebounded in May. That's kind of understandable because, you know, a lot of people might be getting desperate and they're trying to sell their properties. But it's going to be very interesting to see what he has to say about what happened to the property market in May. And then we have Margaret Lomas. Now, a lot of people get sucked into buying properties off the plan, and they do well, some people, but some people get stung as well. So, Margaret, apart from talking about some of the great lessons of investing in property, she'll also talk about buying off the plan. So, before I get to Mike Gable, let me just give you my take on what I'm seeing in the market right now. Now, tipping where stocks and markets go is not really a precise science. Economics and financial markets are a part of academia called social sciences. And the really hard bit is to get your head around is that what we're dealing with is people, uh, society. Uh, and that's what's involved when the stock market is going either up or down. There's a whole collection of attitudes. And we find that stock markets tend to overreact in both directions, overbuy and oversell. And I feel as though we're in an overselling situation right now. I've found that the history of stocks is a big help for the long-term investor. And I can't help the short-term investor, the trader, the speculator. Things go up and down and you just have to learn to live with it if that's what, what you want to be. But for the long-term investor, uh, uh, even the great investor Warren Buffett has uh, actually poo-pooed history when it comes to investing. He uh, once said, if past history was all that is needed to play the game of money, the richest people would be librarians. And I agree with that when you say it's not all that's important in the, the world of money. But even Buffett has actually shown a great respect for the history of what goes on in stock markets. For example, history has shown him that companies with good management are good businesses to invest in. That came from his historical observation of great companies that he's invested in in the past. And he clearly has relied on history when he advised Anyone who's prepared to listen to him is what he said. He said, be fearful when others are greedy and greedy when others are fearful. That comes from the history that at a time when greed uh, is at its maximum, the market's gone too high, there's probably going to be a sell-off. So that's when it's great to be in cash. On the flip side, um, when uh, people start getting really, really fearful, it's often a good time to be greedy and to be a buyer. And I think that's probably the situation now. The market will probably go down more, I think, but not much more. And I think this is probably the time when people should think about, if they've got cash, um, to think about buying um, some really good quality companies that have been clearly over-smashed in recent times. Now, obviously, history can lead you astray. Anyone who looked at AMP's old history could have invested in a loser company, which is, it has become. Though its recent poor history was actually a good clue on what has happened to its share price. Here's the chart of AMP, and you can see for quite some time, it's been telling people, be afraid of this company. It's just not showing any real form whatsoever. Now, right now, the market is getting really negative based on history that big interest rate rises by central banks have created recessions. But it's assuming that the Fed's Jerome Powell is a complete knucklehead who will tighten rates too fast and create a recession. But what if he doesn't? What if, if it's just a mild recession with lots of companies hardly affected? And, it, and if it actually means this, less interest rate rises might come along. And so the tech stocks sell off may well be seen to be over the top. So we, we yeah, it's, it's ridiculous to assume that power is going to be so dumb as to create a recession. And that's what the market's saying right now. Sure, central banks want to scare us. They can't control the oil price. Vladimir Putin, Putin's pretty well doing that with his war in the Ukraine. They, they can't control 
control the supply cost problem in China because of lockdowns, but they can control how excited we are about spending. That's the demand part of uh, inflation. And they're working on that harder than they would really want to do, but they can't control the cost side. They can only control the demand side of inflation. And that's why they're, they're talking tough talk. And, and I think that we will see a big interest rate rise from the Fed um, uh, overnight. Uh, or, well, we would have seen it by the time you see this. I'm recording this before the Fed actually makes this decision. But the bottom line is that they're trying to scare us and they're doing it. And the stock market selling off is actually helping them slow down demand, slow down inflation. So we, we may well be getting, well, I think the market is getting ahead of itself. The here and now is, is all about worrying about recession. That's what the market's doing. Because right now there's now a on interest rates, there's no soft landing, there's no China lockdown easing, and the Russian-Ukraine war isn't heading to a resolution anytime soon. So the market should be scared, and it's causing inflation problems, and explains why the stock market is selling off. But many of these negative issues could be very different and more positive in two or three months' time. I won't bore you with the details, but signs of a slowing US economy are showing up. And that could mean the Fed does not play as tough a game with interest rates as the market is guessing right now. And some really smart people are on board with me in suggesting being greedy sooner rather than later might be rewarding. Well, like who? CNBC pointed to the top Wall Street strategist, Marco Kalonovic, who is uh, sticking by his guns amid the sharp market sell-off on the S&P 500. This is what CNB said recently. So what's that mean? Well, the S&P 500 started the year at 4,796. So if Joe is right, and he thinks that the year will end up flat, right? So where we are now, if we go back to where the S&P 500 was at the beginning of the year, that will be a 27% rebound. Now, this guy is the head of a global market strategy for JP Morgan in the Big Apple. Now, he was ranked number one equity-linked strategist in last year's institutional investment survey in the US. And, and so this guy isn't easily ignored. So I think that's one guy who thinks that the market will rebound, whether he gets 27% is here nor there. To me, the rebound is the most important thing. And then there's a guy called Professor Jeremy Siegel from the Wharton School of Business at the University of Pennsylvania. Now I've listened to this guy for decades and he's one of the sharpest tools in the shed, not the bluntest, but the sharpest. CNBC noted that he said investors who buy now won't be sorry in a year from now, after this market sell-off turns around. We've had, here's what he said, we've had bigger shocks in the past. There may be another 5%, who knows? There may be another 10%, but that means for me moving forward, it just raises the return on the market looking forward. Hold in there. If you've got cash, begin to employ it. You won't be sorry from a year's, a year's time. This is what Siegel said. He also argues that the S&P 500 historically beats inflation. And given that US inflation is 8.6%, that's a piece of history worth noting. So in many ways, the market could be up over 8.6% if history holds true. So what you're seeing here from me now is a reason to believe, okay, things are really crappy, but they don't have to be crappy forever. And it's probably a reasonable buying opportunity. Even if the market falls a bit more, there's a lot of good reason to believe this stock market can turn around. Let's now kick off with Mike Gable from Fairmont Equities. He'll be interviewed by my colleague, Paul Rickard. And though I doubt whether Mike should be showing anything positive for the overall market. He may well have a good sign for a company or two. Thanks for joining me. Talk to you later. Last night, the Federal Reserve increased the uh, Fed funds rate by 0.75%. Probably no real surprise given what had happened in the previous days, but the market had a bit of a relief rally, I guess, now that the, the Fed is over and it can move on. But what does that mean for the US market and also uh, the implications for the Aussie market? I'm joined by Michael Gable. He's the MD of Fairmont Equities to get both a, a technical but also uh, a, a, an economic perspective on what the Fed is up to and what it means for our markets. Michael, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Paul. 
You weren't surprised last night by the Fed and 0.75%, were you? No, I think that uh, it was pretty much uh, a done deal. I mean, markets were expecting it over the last couple of days. I, I guess we're more looking forward to to what the commentary would be, and uh, and it does look like they've kept it open for further um, rises of about 75 basis points. So, at the moment, the market, um, you know, based on last night's price action, seems to be a little bit encouraged by it, but. Um, to be honest, I'm, I'm not convinced that we're, we're not going to see lower levels in the short term. Okay, let, let's come to that in a moment. I thought one of the interesting things from last night was uh, not so much the equity market, but the bond market's behaviour. It was quite a big rally, and the bond market's been really sold off in the last couple of days leading into it. But was that because I just think the Fed is mm. now sort of getting tough enough and, uh, you know, if the Fed gets really aggressive, which it seems to be, it'll eventually sort of tame the inflation bogey? How would you sort of characterise the bond market's reaction to the uh, announcement? Yeah, I think definitely there's, you know, more of a positive view that, that we, you know, we'd rather sort of front load these rates, rate increases now. Um, and there's no point, you know, dithering and, and doing it slowly over the next, you know, several months. Um, but I think it's good to see it uh, happening now because, you know, a few months ago there was clearly the opinion that, the Fed was behind the curve, um, and yeah, look, I think at the moment the reaction is, you know, from the bond market, it's it's good to see that that we're getting some proper rate rises in now, than you know, lading, you know, waiting down the track. All right, let's let's move on to the U.S. market. A bit of a relief rally last night. Um, what's your crystal ball telling you about the, the U.S. Uh, S and P five hundred? I. To be honest, I don't think yesterday's, uh, last night's relief rally um, will have legs. Uh, I, to me, it, you know, we've got that initial pop, but it, it faded into the close. And to me, this doesn't look like a market that's that's ready to give us any any big moves to the upside. So, you know, I was last I was last here on on the program five weeks mm-hmm. ago, um, and I had this chart. With with Peter and what I noticed was was the I think, break I think of major support that shot on up the S and P Yep, sorry, yep. Yeah, so we so there's if you look at the right hand side of the chart, I've drawn two uh, horizontal blue lines. So the upper blue line, which is near forty two hundred, that was a major support level for the S and P five hundred. So it it broke under that um, during our last chat. So so that's where I was quite quite cautious on the market and, and my advice, you know, my advice to clients has been to hold as much cash as you can and just just wait um, for this selling to subside. And, and what, what happened after our last interview was the S&P 500 rallied back up towards that 4,200. It, it, it really failed to, to make any progress after that. And then it's it's been built since then. So last night's bounce to me doesn't look strong enough. Um, those, I'm sure many investors will recall that a month ago when the US uh, Fed raised the rates 50 basis points, we got that initial pop only for the market to sell off after that. So I think the risk is still to the downside in this market. Um, look, if, if, the mar- if, if the US market can hold in here over the next few days, it would make me believe that we may edge higher for the time being. But I think at the moment, the risk is that we just get a further um, further sell-off um, from here. So if we look at, say, the forward PE on the S&P 500, um, it's still sitting at around 17 times uh, during the last few bear markets. Uh, you know, the market didn't turn around until the, that that ratio got to levels closer to about 13, 14. So, you know, potentially another 20% downside. But But I think over the next week or two, I wouldn't be surprised to see the S&P 500 back down towards about 3,400. So uh, another 10% uh, potential drop from here. Um, obviously, the reason why I talk about the S&P 500 a lot is that it, it does drive our market dynamics. Um, so it is worth watching what, what the guys in the US do. But um, I think in terms of when to step in and start start buying, um, I do think it's a bit bit too early. If we do see a, a 10% drop over the next several days, um, that would 
in my opinion, give us a better margin of safety. Uh, and I'd be happy to step in and start picking up a few select names. But, but I'm still of the view that uh, anything I buy is most likely to be to be short term. I think in terms of what will make markets bottom out and and start to head higher again, uh, I think what we'll need to see is is some sort of yeah, pivot from the from the U.S. Federal Reserve. So I think it's highly unlikely that that we're going to bottom out while they're still raising rates. I think I think the next few months will be quite volatile and tough for our market because we're going to have more rate rises. Uh, and there's still going to be a lot of uncertainty as to when it will end. Are we heading into a recession or not? So all of this will create a very difficult environment for the next few months. It seems to me that at the, some the, point... Yeah, the, the two questions investors have, and none of this is really going to be clear after what's happening the last few days, is, is uh, first of all, is their action going to be sufficient enough to tame inflation? And that's going to take a while to, to sort of mm. um, really unfold. And secondly... Uh, is the economy going to hit for a recession? And that one we're probably not going to go for some time. So I think the markets need to have a bit more confidence, particularly about the former, um, before uh, they get too excited. Mm. So given your prognosis for the US market, that doesn't all go well for the Aussie market, although we're not yet in, officially in bear market territory. That's, that's right. So, um, so a bit more downside for, for our market because of what the US market is doing. Um, but yeah, on a positive note, US is in a bear market. That didn't start yesterday. It was pretty much six months ago. So, you know, we've it's working through its bear market. Mm -hmm. um, in some respects, it's pricing in a certain chance of a recession. So we're already down that path. So as I guess as bearish as, as I sound at the moment, um, I know that there is a silver lining at the end. And, you know, a lot of heat's coming out of the market. I think the next few months will be will be tough, uh, but but you know be once once we've we've got that pain out of the way, and in some respects it'd be great just to have all these rate rises happen now. Let's just get it out of the way now, um, and then when it's clear that the rate rises are pausing, or stopping, then I think that will provide the catalyst for the market to head higher. So even though it looks like we may well have a recession later this year early next year as you know markets are forward looking i you know, 2023 could be a ripper of the year for the market i know that sounds strange after all the things i've just said but you know we could potentially end up at lower levels over the next few months uh, and once that pains out of the way once valuations have come down to to more acceptable levels then um as we've seen after every other bear market the rallies you get after um, you know, once the bear market is over, that first 12 months, fantastic opportunities, fantastic moves in prices. So I'm not game enough to buy yet, but, you know, let's not, let's not be uh, too negative here. Let's not put our money in term deposits because when this is over, uh, I think we could have a, a really nice run on the market. We just have to put up with a bit of pain at the moment. Okay, so bottom fishers, be a little bit careful. But, uh, okay, let's move on to a couple of uh, Australian stocks in particular. The banks have been hit pretty hard. Uh, I guess, in a way, I can't say I was that surprised because I couldn't understand why everyone kept saying that interest rates going up were good for banks. They're very good in the short term, but they're painful the long term, and the market suddenly realised that. Yeah. Let's have a look at the, the best and the biggest and also the most stable in Commonwealth banks. So um, what's your prognosis for the uh, Commonwealth Bank? Um, I'm glad to hear you, you say that, Paul, about, about interest rate rises because, I mean, you know the bank's much better than I do and, and most people out there. And yeah, I, I agree. I think, you know, the way it's looking at the moment with interest rate rises, it's it's not going to be good for the banks. But what's likely to happen to the housing market is not going to be good for the banks. So I, I think I think the banks have, have a big chance of underperforming the broader market over the next year or two um, because of those reasons. CBA up until recently, I mean, CBA is my preferred pick out of all the banks. Um, as you know, some investors, I mean, a lot of investors don't know this, but, but some investors would know that CBA has held up much better than the other banks over the last several years. It's performed much better, even though it's, it always seems expensive, but it's expensive for a reason. I mean, the, the share price, for example, of Westpac is half of where it was um, in 2015 and NAB never recovered from 
from the GFC. So CBA has always been the best bank, but I think it's going to uh, it's going to um, be under pressure for a while. So okay, let's, let's, months, go, let's go to the chart and you know, your analysis there if we can, because I'm not interested in bearish and banks, but I'm really keen to hear mm -hmm. what what you've got to say um, uh, if if we go through what what your chart is saying to you, which we I think we now have on so up until. Yeah, so, so it was in a bit of a trading range in the last several months and um, we took the opportunity two weeks ago um, to advise our clients to sell out because I just couldn't see at the top of that range why CBA would go on to make all-time highs. Um, but unfortunately, for those, for those holding CBA, in the last few days, it's broken the lower level um, of that range. So that support line's been broken and I've just circled that at the far right-hand side. Mm -hmm. And then what I've noticed so far today is it's tried to get back to that old support level, which was around $93, uh, and then it's pulled back, um, which is, uh, to me, that's a classic sort of sell signal. So if you're looking to, to sell CBA, I think the way it's behaved today is, is telling you that it's going lower. Um, so in terms of charts, I think it'll, it'll head probably back towards that $80 region. I mean... If we could see CBA back at eighty dollars, um, I'd be tempted to um, to pick it up for for a bounce. But at the moment, I'm more of the view that that we'll get these bounces in the banks, but but nothing uh, too solid in terms of share price performance for a while. So I guess the short answer is um, CBA for the moment looks weak, possibly back to eighty dollars, and then we can we can reassess. Okay. And finally, let's go on to Fortescue because it's at the other end. I mean, it's been uh, doing pretty well because of the iron ore price and other factors. What's, the, what's your take on Fortescue? So resources in general, I, I still think are the go-to space um, for, the, for the moment or for, you know, for the next couple of years. Um, Fortescue, in my opinion, the way it's trading is very, very impressive. So it's it's held up quite well so far this year we can see on the chart um, what i've indicated with the diagonal blue lines is is basically it's headed sideways uh, for you know the last five or six months but the range is starting to tighten up and usually that leads to some sort of resolution it could be to the upside or downside um, we need to to wait and see but the good thing about Fortescue is despite what the market's done recently, it's held up really well. So when the market is ready to rally, um, you know, maybe that's in a few days, maybe it is after a, a further 10% drop, but when it is finally ready to have a bit of a bounce, Fortescue is, is one that I'd most likely be looking to buy because it's held up so well. Okay. I think the big mistake a lot of investors make is they'll try to buy the stocks that have fallen the most because they appear the cheapest. But I think what you'll find is those that have held up the best, it might seem counterintuitive because they haven't fallen so much, but but they're the better ones to buy because if they're already getting buying now, imagine yeah. how well they'll do once the broader market looks better. And if you have a look at the performance of Fortescue during the last, um, if we ignore COVID, but if we go back to 2000, it's not on this chart, but if you have a look at the end of 2018, as you'll recall, um, you know, the share market in those last few months really got belted. Um, and Fortescue share price actually crept higher during that whole time. So that sign of strength, I know for a lot of people, they didn't want to buy Fortescue then. But when the market got going, Fortescue was trading at $4. Wish we could all have our time back and, and load, load back the truck up then. But but four months after the market rally started at the start of 2019, Fortescue had moved from $4 to $8, so it doubled in price. So you could see that the strongest stocks do tend to perform there. So Fortescue, I think for, for our viewers, keep that on your watch list. When the market's ready to roll uh, and start uh, start rallying again, I think, I think Fortescue can do pretty well. Okay, well, I mean, I think that's really good advice about uh, sticking to the quality because in... Uh... Yeah, we're giving you a little bearish tone on, on overall for the market. Not too bearish, but a little bearish. You know, we see that time and time again. The quality stocks rebound the first and the hardest, uh, and sometimes they're the stocks that drop least because of the buyers are already there, and they're the ones people want to buy for, for, because they know yep. that they'll perform the best. So, 
Um, this is not the time to be chasing the second or the third tiers, I don't think. So 100% uh, with you there. I just, I agree. And I'm ho I hope your bearish prognosis on the US doesn't prove to be true. We can hold 3,700, but maybe it needs to go down further first before it can rebound. So uh, let's see what happens. But uh, Michael Gable, the Managing Director of Fairmont Equities, thanks for joining us on Switzer. Thanks, Paul. Joining me now is Angus Moore from PropTrack. He's an economist and also part of the uh, REA group. Angus, welcome to the program. Pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. The uh, RBA shocked the market with a half percent interest rate increase. What impact do you think that might have on the property market as we look forward? Yeah, look, it was, it was certainly a surprise. I've been surprised a bit this year by how quickly and how aggressively the RBA has moved. You know, even as recently as March this year, the governor was saying we wouldn't see interest rates rise until 2023. And clearly that's not the case. And you know, we're going to see a number of interest rate rises this year. I think we're already starting to see the effect of that on the property market. Measures of buyer demand have come off. You know, we can track on realestate.com.au how many people are searching, how many people are engaging with listings. And both those things have come off the, the really record levels we were seeing earlier this year and late last year. And that's already translating into price as well. So we saw prices fall nationally for the first time in May, down just 0.1%. But, you know, I think with interest rates rising as much as they are and as quickly as they are, we'll probably continue to see falls over the next few months at least. And just let's just peer into sort of where the, the market is moving. You said only 0.1% nationally, but uh, Sydney and Melbourne are playing out quite differently to the other states, other capital cities in the regions. Just go through some of the data in terms of... Uh, how Sydney and Melbourne are different from perhaps some of the uh, other state capitals and the regional centres. Yeah, there, there is a real divergence between Sydney and Melbourne and some of the other areas. So first on listings, we've actually seen quite a lot of stock come to market in Sydney and Melbourne. Um, both cities have had one of the busiest starts to the year for new listings mm -hmm. coming to market in about a decade. That's helped lift what buyers can choose from. We're now looking at kind of the number of properties available and listed for sale at something like decade average in both of those cities. And that's radically not the case in places like Brisbane and Adelaide where stock remains well down on pre-pandemic levels and well down on uh, decade averages. We're seeing that play out in price. So Sydney and Melbourne are seeing larger falls, both fell about 0.3% in May. Um, whereas places like Adelaide, which continues to be kind of outperformer prices still grew 0.6%. Now that's slower than it was last year. You know, that macro factor of interest rates is affecting everyone, but places like Brisbane and Adelaide do seem to continue to be outperforming given the demand we've been seeing for them. Angus, do you have a sense why you're not seeing the volume of listings in Adelaide and Brisbane? Yeah, so we're certainly starting to see more stock coming to market in those cities, but Part of the issue is they're just selling so quickly that the available stock on market at any given time is lower than it was pre-pandemic, quite significantly in some parts of Brisbane and Adelaide. So even with the, the Im improvement in new stock coming this year, we're, we're still just not seeing that available stock pick up as much. And what about the difference between some of the capital cities and the region? Are we still seeing a lot of people's sea changes, tree changes, whatever you want to call them? Um, is there still demand for, for property in sort of the regional areas outside the major capital cities? Yeah, it's a great question. I think for me, it's going to be kind of the most interesting dynamic to watch over the next 12 months is how much of that regional shift is permanent. Mm. We are continuing to see regional areas outperform in terms of price. Most are still growing um, and are growing faster than capital cities, Brisbane and Adelaide accepted. In terms of what we can expect, I think a lot of it's going to depend on how much of this shift to the regions was permanent. And, and that's really hard to know. My view is we probably will see some of it is permanent. I think for some people living somewhere like the Central Coast in Sydney or the Mornington Peninsula in, which is technically part of Melbourne, but Mornington Peninsula in, in Melbourne or Geelong is viable now in a way that it wasn't a few years ago. And we are seeing that people are persistently and this is a big change we saw over the pandemic, looking for bigger dwellings. People want an extra bedroom, they want a backyard, they want a patio. That seems to be persistent. And to the extent that you live in Melbourne, very hard to afford that. Whereas if you can go to Geelong, it becomes a bit more feasible. So I think that aspect will persist. 
but how much so? I think really open question and really interesting thing to watch this year. Yeah, because there have been reports also that um, that one of the issues, a lot of the um, tree changes, sea changes, whatever you call them, find is that the infrastructure's just not there in some of these regional places. Uh, so do you think that might be sort of a countervailing sort of you know, force that might just cool that market a little bit? Yeah, I think it will be. I think we'll need to, you know, as is true in the cities as well, we'll need to adjust where we build infrastructure to where people want to live. And if that's increasingly in regional areas, that will mean we'll need to increasingly focus our infrastructure in regional areas. You know, we are seeing a real dearth of properties available for sale in regional areas. You know, we spoke about Adelaide and Brisbane, but it's even more acute in regional areas. Available stock for sale is down more than 40% yeah. nationwide in regional areas compared to pre-pandemic. That's making it very hard for buyers, either regional buyers that lived there prior to the pandemic and are trying to buy now, or people that have moved and are looking. That competition is part of what's driven prices in regional areas. And you know, I think if we want to address that going forward, we will just need to build more homes regionally. Yeah, well, it will be interesting to see just how higher interest rates impact that impacts that demand, if at all, for regional properties or whether there's really other factors that are are driving both the demand and the supply side there. So, look, uh, fascinating stuff, Angus. Uh, that's Angus Moore uh, from PropTrack. He's an economist. Uh, thanks for joining us on uh, Switzer. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me, Paul. That was Angus Moore from PropTrack. He's an economist there and some interesting insights about uh, what's happening in regional property. Well, I'm joined now by Margaret Lomas, and I want to talk to her about a number of things about what she's seeing in the property market. And uh, I also want to talk to her about buying off the plan. Um, a lot of people ask me about it, and I know some people have got it right, but gee, some people have got it wrong. Margaret, thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. So, Margaret, you know, the headlines now are house prices are starting to fall. Are, are you imagining that house prices are going to fall terribly or just measurably okay? You know what, I think it depends on individual areas and even individual properties and what you found was the price when you went in. As you know, Peter, when you get to the frenzy of a property market boom, you will get a significant number of people who pay even more than the intrinsic value of those properties at the time because they have that fear of missing out. And so they rush in and they overbid everybody else just to secure a property because they're worried that they're going to miss out and it's going to get out of their price range. So I think those people who got in at the last, you know, in the last three or four months, definitely will find a fairly significant correction to the price that they paid for the properties that they bought. I think if you bought six months prior to that, you're probably going to be okay. Mm. I don't think we'll have a crash. We, How many times have you and I had a conversation about an impending property crash yeah. only to see that it hasn't happened. Yeah. Decades, I'd say. Decades. It, every, I think every couple of years we have the discussion. The experts are saying there's going to be a property crash. You and I comment on that and it never happens. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and you look at the charts over a long period of time, prices tend to go down for a while, then they go sideways and then up they go again. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think the thing that property investors really need to try to understand, and I know many do these days, is that this last property boom, which affected most of our property markets, but not all of them, was the first time in my property investing lifetime that I saw every market going up at the same time. Yeah. Uh, it's the first time in my lifetime that we've been in a pandemic as well. And so we didn't know what the effect was going to be. Now that we're returning to more normal life and you know we've got problems with the economy and we've got all sorts of things going on, we should return to that time where some property markets will be growing while others aren't. And Equally, while we see those very overheated markets, mostly Sydney, correct a little, I don't expect to see any correction. In fact, I expect to see further growth in some other property markets, Brisbane, but mostly Adelaide and Perth. Mm. Now, I'm going to ask that question because historically I have asked you where you thought the, the best value is. 
What's making Adelaide? Because you always Adelaide was a nice steady market. You, you gained often two or three percent, but it didn't shoot the lights out. But the numbers I've been seeing lately indicate that Adelaide could start shooting the lights out. But they are. And in fact, I've got, as you may know, quite a number of properties in Adelaide. I've got properties all over Australia. And those properties just did what they always do, which is it went up a little bit every year. And I'm always happy with that. And suddenly I have properties that were, uh, as an example, one worth 300000 And within a year, it's become worth 450000 So that's mm. a 50% growth in a year. And we have seen pockets of Adelaide performing just like that. I think it's what I have always expected to happen, which is that property first of all becomes the most affordable capital city. And because of that, when other capital cities are starting to grow in value, then the attention comes to Adelaide from investors. And that increased intention then scares the local people who want to rush in as well. And we see that sudden pressure coming really from people thinking, I can get a great yield. I can get a good buy-in price. It feels right from my conservative investing position and therefore that brings the demand into a market like Adelaide. So, so generally speaking, Margaret, do you think investors over time, we know there are times when investors don't necessarily make capital gains but they still can get their, their reasonable uh, yield, um, but do you think the, the, the one big advantage for property investors is the lack of supply in this country? and the fact that we have lots of immigration? I think you're right. And a lot of people don't think about that. Uh, when people invest in property, they generally tend to use the same parameters that they will to use to buy property to live in. And that is to consider the lifestyle effects or the lifestyle offerings of that area and whether it's an area that is uh, one that people aspire to. People always naturally think that an area like Vaucluse in Sydney and, um, you know, areas like Turak in Melbourne will always be a fabulous blue chip solid investment. But when you look at the figures over time and consider percentage of growth, that's not the case. We mm. can point to quite a number of regional towns that over time have performed better from a percentage point of view than both of those suburbs have ever performed. Mm. And so people tend to go into property investing thinking the same way, when in fact they've got to think about what creates demand in those markets, which will make them grow really well. Immigration is definitely one of them. And as we see immigration grow again into Australia, we'll look to those markets that are generally the outer suburbs of capital cities where people who are migrating to Australia decide that they're going to settle. Initially, they'll rent there, which impacts on the rent returns in those areas and gives a good rental yield. And ultimately, they tend to buy in those same areas, which then impacts on the demand. But furthermore, on top of that, we'll always have property investors who want to buy in those more affordable markets. And that's simply because property investing is so accessible and easy to do in Australia. So it tends to be attractive to people who might not be on big incomes, people who have low risk profiles and, and don't really want to go and invest in the share market, people who have suddenly found themselves with equity in their homes today and underlying wealth that they didn't expect to have this quickly. And they're ready to add to their existing home with an additional property that they feel comfortable with, but in those lower price ranges. And this mm. is, I think, why we're seeing that demand continue in Adelaide, Perth and Brisbane. Uh, Margaret, before I ask you about buying off the plan, what do you think is the, what is the, the area in Australia that's most exciting you in terms of the, the potential gain, buying now and, and expecting to do well? Mm. Look, I, as you know, I get excited by property everywhere yeah. and I think there's uh, a lot to be gained from investing in 
property in certain areas right now. When I think about an area that excites me... We have me, to understand that I'm not trying to pick the next area that's suddenly going to boom next year and make a bucket load of money for the people who buy there because I'm of the firm belief that nobody can really make that forecast. We often see areas suddenly grow in value unexpectedly. We don't know why it's happened and often it's nothing more than just a pent-up demand and that FOMO kicking in and everybody buying at once to suddenly create this fabulous growth. But after that happens, the, the area sits flat for a long time. So when I look at the areas that I like, bear in mind that I'm trying to look over someone's investing life and consider that someone is going to want to buy a property now keep it for at least the foreseeable future and probably up to 20 years and some people into their retirement years, have it increase in value along the way at a nice enough rate to enable them to leverage a bit more into some more property, but then result in a really good yield at the end because once we get to retirement, we've got enough assets under our belt, it's going to be that cash flow that we need to get us out of that workforce. So the areas that I really like at the moment, there's two in Perth. One is Forest Field. And the reason I like Forest Field is that the demographic is middle management. They're, they are people who are not experiencing any kind of mortgage stress and have quite a way to go before they would do so. So they can handle uh, any interest rate rises and we're not going to see forced sales happening anytime soon. That entire area has just had the Forest Field Link train line from Perth throughout to the um, eastern suburbs and uh, it's now connected back to Perth by a train line. It's connected to the airport and there's a lot of other infrastructure going in, including major road developments. And you can also buy in there in the mid 300s. Sure. You'll see a six to 7% return. And so over time, that one's going to keep performing. It'll become more and more popular as we go along. That's a great one. Yanchip in Perth is a long-termer. If you're young getting into the property market for the first time and you want a fairly cheap property with a great yield, over time, the, the population of Yanchip is forecast to go up fivefold in the next 10 years. And that's going to bring a lot of demand into Yanchip. The train line is just about finished. The freeway is being cut right through to Yanchip. So all of those commuting difficulties will be removed and people in Perth are now becoming more and more amenable to living, you know, 40 minutes from the city. Whereas before anything more than 20 was a bit of anathema to most people there. Mm. Um, look, an old favourite of mine, of course, is Onkaparinga Shire down in South Australia. Lots of infrastructure, fabulous yields. Could be a little bit late into some of the coastal suburbs, but there are suburbs just in behind them that are working really well at the moment. And our data is actually telling us that Elizabeth, which is uh, Adelaide's Mount Druitt, is now showing one of the fastest growths in all of Adelaide at the present moment. Okay, great stuff. All right, let's go to um, buying off the plan. I, and I sent you something that was sent to me by a, by a colleague, and I think it was in WA. Was it was it Coogee, Coogee yes. Bay? Or? Yes. Now, you know what you sent me wasn't an off the plan purchase. Yeah. What you sent me was fractional investing and it is an investment into an NDIS scheme. So the NDIS is building, uh, I guess in this case, it's nine villas, mm. which is targeted for people on the NDIS to be able to rent. It's uh, guaranteed rental by the government. So it's a little bit like Defence Force mm, Homes. Defense force, yeah. The difference with the one that yeah, the difference with the one that you sent to me is that you're not buying the properties, you're not buying a share of the property, you're buying units in the trust which is buying okay. the property. Yeah. Um, looking through it, there's a couple of things that concerned me a little bit. They're quoting or forecasting a 5% per annum growth for the 12 year period of the investment. Um, nobody can guarantee that as you know as with any managed fund there'll be forecasts that may not be met 
Perth has never done 12 years of consistent growth in its life. So I'm not mm. sure what will happen to suddenly change that and make that 5% a year come. So they're quoting that. They're quoting a guaranteed income. That will probably be reassured. There's quite a few fees around it as well. And the thing about fractional investing into this kind of property syndicate is that people must understand that they aren't listed trusts, which means that you can't dispose easily of your mm. units. You can own only sell them to other people who already have units if they want to take them. You can only sell them for whatever someone else would pay for it. And if you want more units, you can't buy them because they're normally fully subscribed. So people need to be a little bit wary of those kinds of things because they are just another managed fund with the underlying asset being this real property instead of the underlying assets being a range of shares or a range of commercial property or a range of residential property. Okay, good point. So I, I did say that you would talk about your views on buying off the plan. Just in a <laughs> nutshell, what are the things that worry you? Because I've seen people succeed, I've seen people fail terribly. What are the main hazards of buying off the plan? I think there are many that people don't even realise exist. And I have also seen people who have succeeded in buying off the plan. But I think the majority of investors, I can confidently say, either don't get any more out of off the plan than they would out of buying an established property, yet they've waited three or four years for that to even be built. Um, or a significant proportion of people, they either get nothing immediately or lose immediately or have to wait a long to recover the initial investment or the initial amount of that investment. Let me tell you a couple of things that are, that are difficult about off the plan. Firstly, as we said, they're not built for three or four years. You go to the bank and you get a loan approved to buy this property, which is settling in three or four years time. That means that between now and that three or four years time, your financial circumstances cannot change in any way because a lot of people don't realise your loan has to be approved again on settlement. And if anything about your financial circumstances have changed, then you may not get that loan approval and yet the developer has a signed contract from you and your 10% may be negotiated down to five, which you will lose if you don't proceed with the sale. So that's the first problem. The second problem is that you may be approved for a loan, your circumstances may not change, but on finish, that property is revalued by the bank. And if it doesn't come in on the forecast value by the, the developer, so they might say this is going to be worth 600 and it might only be worth 500, the bank only lends on whatever it is worth, not what you're paying. And mm -hmm. I've seen people in the Gold Coast who have put up their home as a deposit or equity in their own home as a deposit, find that they can't borrow enough to proceed, they have no more equity in their home to unlock, and they have lost their homes trying to pay the developer for this development that is now worth a lot less than they'd hoped. That's the other problem. It's very difficult to forecast in four years' time what the demand is going to be. Mm. So you might buy in a, an apartment in a block where there's not that many other apartments and at the moment we have a 1% vacancy rate. In four years' time, there could be 20 other apartment blocks that go up when yours go up and suddenly we have an oversupply when you're settling, you can't get the rent you thought you were going to get and the rent you can get may not cover your outgoings and you could suffer from severe financial distress as a result mm. of that. I guess the last big problem is that, or there's two, um, one is that we have had more than our fair share of developers go into liquidation before a, a unit block is finished um, yeah. and then you're left basically holding the baby, probably losing your deposit. If they go into liquidation, they're not going to have any money to pay that back to you. And the second problem is people getting uh, to settlement 
and finding that what they've bought isn't quite what they thought it was going to be. You might have seen the plans and the, the, the beautiful images of the best apartment in the block and not realise that when yours is built, there's potentially only a tiny little window or no window in a bedroom, or you overlook the garbage bins at the back when you expected to have an ocean view. Or worse still, the developer has been able to enact his 10% change, which he's allowed to have, and that 10% change just doesn't suit you and you end up with something entirely different. Mm. So many things can go wrong. One last thing before we go, you've um, actually uh, done a book uh, with, with uh, a colleague about being a small developer where you, you actually encountered a few challenges, I believe. Well, look, it's really a thriller. I'm telling everybody it's like a thriller novel. Um, four years ago, more than four years ago now, I decided that I wanted to carry out a couple of developments that I had. I'd developed property before, but I'd always handed over all of the responsibility to other people outside companies who did everything for me and I didn't learn anything. So I wanted to learn more about how to develop and Peter Kalizos, who runs property development courses at Adelaide Uni, he comes on my show fairly frequently and I said to him, how about we how about you help me develop them? You teach me how to do it, I'll do it, and we will diarise every step and in a year's time we'll have a great book and I'll have some developments. So he agreed to do that. Little did we know that everything that could go wrong would go wrong, <laughs> even for experienced Peter and me. I've been around a fair bit as well. Um, so everything that could go wrong went wrong. We ended up in the Land and Environment Court. At one stage I had two developments, one was a four unit block, one was a, a, a two unit block, then I had none, then I had one back on and then another off and then another on and then another off and I diarised the whole thing. We got today I think 1104 by the time we finished mm. um, and if you want to learn what not to do when you're building anything from one house up to six units, that's the book for you. Okay, so if people want to access it, where do they get it from? So they can get it on Amazon in both physical form and Kindle form, and it's called Diary of a Small Developer, or they can go to destiny.com.au to my shop. We have a bit of a special on it because we've only just launched the book, and they can get it there postage free um, at a special price. Great stuff. Margaret, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And that's the show for tonight. Let's keep our fingers crossed that this market sentiment can turn around and uh, we start seeing some rebounding of stock markets around the world. I'm Peter Switzer. Thanks for joining us.